0: Their cars crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you would ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maude. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car.
1: This is a bon Bon from Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast. A little something extra. Hey, this is Eleanor Kagan, one half of Bonnie and Maude. In our latest episode, Kseni and I, along with our friend, the comedy writer Meg Sweeney-Lawless, merely scratched the surface of portrayals of working women in movies by taking a look at two classics, His Girl Friday and Network. So Network, with its prophetic vision of our current media landscape, is clearly on the cultural brain right now. So we wanted to sit down with Dave Itzkoff, a culture reporter for The New York Times and the author of the new book, Mad as Hell, the Making of Network, and The Fateful Vision of the Angriest Man in Movies. Hey, Dave. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. I'm sorry I got your co-host sick, though.
1: I know. Well, she was screaming out of uh, windows about how mad as hell she was she lost her <laughs> voice. So she's uh, sorry that she can't be with us today.
0: <laughs> no problem. I'll, I'll, I'll try to carry the load. <laughs>
1: So, Dave, I found your book really fascinating Thank you. as a big fan of Network. And obviously, I want to get into, you know, the story of Faye Dunaway and her character, Diana Christensen. Um, but first, I'm actually curious about your relationship with the movie you know, especially as somebody who works in media yourself.
0: Sure. Well, I think you've already kind of hinted at it. I mean, just as a person in the business and somebody who writes a lot about film and television anyway, the fact that there is this great feature film that is about TV and also sort of by connection, a movie about movies in a way, uh, I mean, that was sort of irresistible. And, you know, I'm always just, I've, I've been into the popular culture of the 1970s because I was born in 1976 and I have... Fuzzy memories of that period, but it's also like an era that's just out of reach to me. And it's also just a great era for filmmaking in in general that a lot of the studio movies of those days were totally willing to take on very challenging topics, somewhat subversive subject matter. There's a very... Paranoid Strain, going through films like Network and All the President's Men and Marathon Man, that whole year of films.
1: Taxi Driver, too. That was a good year.
0: Yep. And then about three years ago, I was offered by the New York Public Library which owns Paddy Chayefsky's papers, they just said you can come on by and take a look at some of the papers relating to network. Anybody can actually go to the library and and request these papers, but they were curious to see if I thought there might be an article in there, and there certainly was. uh, I mean, there's just so much richness in, not only in Chayefsky's screenplay drafts and all the iterations that the movie went through in its writing, but all the correspondence that he kept during the making of the movie, the period preceding it, the the years that followed, uh, he died only five years after Network came out. And the only other movie that he was involved with after that was Altered States, which he was extremely dissatisfied with and took his name off of. And so Network is really kind of his magnum opus. And there was just so much richness Uh, in his materials first of all that suggested a, a story that you know i really wanted to see told and had never seen before and then to get to kind of reach out into the wider world and talk to lots of other people that were involved with the movie people who were in the media at the time and remember it's being released and then people in the media today who see it in a very different way and have already basically lived through the period that it Prophesized. That was fun,
1: which is such an interesting part of the book. But I want to get to that sure. a little bit later. Some of the reactions of uh, folks today in the media. Um, but so in Mad as Hell, you follow Chayevsky, who is essentially the driving force behind the whole show. He's not just the screenwriter, and it seems like not only his entire career but his entire life has been leading up to making Network. Um, and before Network, didn't a lot of his work kind of center on? what it meant to be a man and kind of the emotionalism that ha- comes with being a man in the 1950s.
0: Certainly some of it. I mean, the, the his most famous work previous to, to Network is Marty, which starts off as a, a teleplay in the early 1950s and then becomes the Oscar-winning film with Ernest Borgnine, and that's about a man, a man in his mid-30s, who is a butcher and looking for love and very lonely and kind of uh, forlorn. I mean, that's a very... uh, Not a typical sort of male story, at least not a typical male story of that era, and that's an unfolding of a very personal story for him, I think. Uh, But there were, you know, strong female characters in other works that he wrote. I mean, certainly early films like... The Goddess, which is kind of his take on a Marilyn Monroe type figure, uh, you know, a, a film star uh, with a very, you know, sort of deep and complicated uh, psychological history. And, you know, even things like uh, The Middle of the Night, which also started off as a teleplay and became both a stage play and a film. And that's about a kind of May-December romance. And the, the woman in that piece is... You know, about as fleshed out as women were allowed to be in, in this period. I mean, she's working a kind of typical, I think, like a secretarial job for like a fabric company in New York's fashion district. So there's a lot of limitations just based on, I think, you know, Chayefsky's own life experience, what he understands of, of women at this point, and also just, you know, the, the roles that women were allowed to play in life, you know, and, and sure. the extent that he had access to that at all.
1: Sure. And I love the story about how he was inspired to write Marty after seeing a discarded sign at a dance that said... Girls, dance with the man who asks you. Remember, men have feelings too.
0: (laughs) Right. That was for like one of these lonely hearts dances (laughs) where, you know, it's sort of like a last resort of the lovelorn. You go there with a hangdog expression on your face and you hope for the best.
1: So Chayefsky's relationship with his wife was uh, one part of your book that I found particularly interesting, especially when she gave him notes on network. Do you think that any of the notes... Uh, Susan Chayefsky gave him uh, wound up affecting the script or made it into Network or the way that, you know, the female characters in Network came out?
0: It's it's hard to know for sure. First of all, I mean, you know, their their home life is, is as in a lot of couples and spouses, it's pretty complicated that Susan Chayefsky, at least, you know, according to her son, uh, their son, Dan, the couple's son, uh, you know, she was already kind of... Uh, And agoraphobic, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, really, you know, certainly didn't like, you know, didn't like to go out a lot and was very particular about if she was going to go out, things had to be just a certain way. And then later in life, she started having kind of panic attacks and just these physical fits, you know, that they couldn't diagnose at the time. And then it was a kind of adult onset, almost like an epilepsy or something, mm-hmm. you know. And and so it certainly kept her confined to the home a lot. So that made things very complicated for her and and Patty. But the fact that he gave her the script at all is just kind of fascinating. Oh because yeah. You know, he was not the sort of person who really shared his work around before it was done in his mind. Like, you see him rewrite and rewrite the script numerous times, and it goes through lots of of changes. But at no time does he ever, like, give it to his producing partner to say, hey, what do you think of it at this stage? He's not giving it to any studio executives to ask for their suggestions. And even when he considers it to be done... Like, he's not going to a studio to say, what do you think we should change or what are your notes? Like, he hates notes. Yeah. When, he, when he turns in a script, in his mind, it is finished. So the fact that he wants his wife's input is really unique. She's the only person that sort of has that role. And a lot of what she seems to have focused on in her notes to him are the male-female relationships and the female-female relationships, sure. the few that exist— talking about well does this dialogue sound realistic? Is the Max Schumacher character is he telling off Diana Christensen in too harsh a way? does Diana's uh, language sound a little too hip? Are people gonna get it to the extent that there is uh, an interaction between Diana and the uh, the head of the, the left-wing radical group those are the kinds of things that she's making notes on and again it's not totally clear how much of that Chayefsky incorporated. But you can see those are the kinds of – those are the parts of the movie that are interesting or that she's taking note of rather than here's what I think about the Mad as Hell speech or here's what I think about the Arthur Jensen speech. It's very interesting that these are the moments that his wife gravitated to.
1: Yeah, and I I wondered if he maybe gave her the script – as kind of a, a nice loving gesture in a way. You know, you like have your, your spouse or your uh your significant other kind of like look over something and it's it's like you wanna hear their thoughts, but it's also kind of just a nice way to bring them into what you're working on. Even yeah. if maybe you know you feel pretty set in your ways already
0: i think it's yeah it's it's a really kind of tremendous uh, gesture and even you know th- this is still preserved the cover page of that script of what he considers to be the finished draft of network he dedicates to his wife he says for my susie mm-hmm. i mean that is the most touching thing about network oh, everything yeah. else beyond that is uh, you know much harsher and more cynical i think
1: Um, So I want to talk a little bit about Faye Dunaway now. Um, I I
0: imagine you want to talk a lot about Faye Dunaway. I do. (laughs) I mean,
1: there are so many amazing anecdotes in your book about her, Um, like the uh, the, – $970 $970 wig that she bought and tried to uh, pass off to the studio, <laughs> which was uh, amazing. You know, why do you think she took this role in the first place, knowing that people would probably wind up equating Diana's characteristics with her and using her as this, like, tentpole for how women in the news would be viewed?
0: Sure. Well, in my book, uh, you know, a lot of the story of Chayefsky, of Patty Chayefsky, is, a, you know, a story about his... Fight for control, and I, th- you know, over all the work that he did, and I think you can see a kind of parallel story in the trajectory of, of Faye Dunaway and her life and and her work. She grew up in Florida, in you know, her dad was a sharecropper first, and then he goes back into the military, and she's living on you know army bases in Europe with him, and he has this one incident when she's like eleven years old, where he gets drunk and goes AWOL and gets court-martialed, and she tells this very you know vivid story of of being at the trial or at the court-martial and vowing to herself at, like, age 11 that for the rest of her life, she's never going to allow herself to depend on a man.
1: Which is amazing at age 11. This
0: is like, you know, if she were a superhero, like, that would be her origin story. (laughs) This is, like, the defining moment. And then she has this really spectacular career, you know, from college on, a a really tremendous theater career, and she could have been uh, a Fulbright scholar, but instead, you know, she joins, uh, you know, Lincoln Center's theater company, and gets onto Broadway before she's 25, and then the movie roles start coming. And you know she does Bonnie and Clyde, and that gets her her first Oscar nomination. Then she has this kind of weird period where people are already kind of writing her off and sort of saying, "Well, you know what happened to her career?" And she's not even 30, and she's still making movies, and she's yeah. in like Little Big Man, and she's just in like these slightly more challenging and you know less mainstream or less widely seen films for like you know eight years. And then she makes Chinatown, and then everybody's sort of talking about, you know, Ophé Dunaway is making a comeback. The movie obviously is like, you know, hugely received. She gets another Oscar nomination, but she also has this really contentious relationship with Roman Polanski, and he gives, uh, you know, a very famous interview to Rolling Stone where he calls her a gigantic pain in the ass. Sure. And that tag just it just sticks with her, and she goes into all of her work with ideas about her character. She's not the kind of person who's just going to be told by a screenwriter or a director, you know, this is the person and this is how you're going to play them. She always wants to have input and involvement and particularly she's a woman in a male dominated field all of her directors are male and and some of them just cannot countenance this idea of a woman who has thoughts that might be different or contrary to what they want hmm. and this leads to a lot of headbutting and and that's yeah. that's certainly her reputation uh, going in into network but she sees on paper just seeing from Chayefsky's script that you know Diana is going to kick off a kind of whole debate about women in the workplace and women of the 1970s. And she knows that this character isn't necessarily the best representative of that argument. And she even has friends and associates who are kind of warning her, don't take this role because you're going to be forever associated with this person. People are going to think you're Diana. And she kind of embraces that. Like she's sort of excited about getting to ignite this uh, conversation.
1: Exactly. Exactly. She's starting off the conversation and at least offering up some example of a high powered woman in a high powered workplace. There's so many things I want to follow up on. Um, First off, though, did you get to talk to her at all?
0: No. Uh, and that was, you know... It- Faye Dunaway wrote a great memoir uh, called Looking for Gatsby, where she tells a lot of her life story and Mm -hmm. talks about her network, uh, some of her network experiences. Sidney Lumet also writes about her in his memoir, uh, making movies. And other people who worked on the film remembered her pretty vividly, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we did make, you know, all kinds of efforts to make her aware of the project and see if she wanted to talk. And, you know, we went through proper channels, improper channels, people (laughs) who had close relationships to her, who could make entreaties to her. And it's her right not to want to participate in something like this. I think that's that's sort of part of the Faye Dunaway mystique, that if she were that easily accessible, it would all, you know, she just wouldn't be Faye Dunaway.
1: Sure, sure. And the insight that, you know, a man is difficult on set and he is you know kind of a, a hard ass and that a woman is difficult on set and she's a pain in the ass is uh, something that has been echoed recently i feel like i just heard um i don't know who Nicki minaj is the last person i'm aware of <laughs> of, of echoing that sentiment recently um faye's experience on set was not the easiest ride and um Particularly with the love scenes that she had to shoot with uh, um, William Holden, who played Max Schumacher, right. um, provided a lot of stress for her um, on top of everything else. Um, it, it wasn't just the nudity that was making her uncomfortable, it was the fact that she had to be talking the entire time through the sex scene with Max, and it was Patty's language that was almost more, or I don't know, maybe equal, a difficult part for her.
0: I I mean it's hard it's hard to know exactly what you you know the concern was I th- I I mean I I that it, she does say herself that you know what I mean it's it's the the constant talking that you know the I mean if if people aren't familiar with the scene you know she and William Holden they have their kind of you know th- their affair in a little no-tell motel you know out on Long Island And, you know, from the moment that he basically sits down to dinner with her, you know, through the whole act of lovemaking and even, you know, in a sort of post-coital, you know, setting, she is talking the entire time about her job and about ratings and the kinds of shows that she wants to develop and how they're doing and what other rival network shows she's looking at. And so it's meant to be a kind of... Uh, satirical commentary on on her as a character and how sort of laser-focused she is just solely on her work. And so, I mean, certainly for Chayefsky and for the filmmakers, uh, you know, for Sidney Lumet and the producer Howard Gottfried, you know, it's a very crucial scene and it's got to play out exactly as as envisioned. The standoff, you know, it could have been about the language... I, I wouldn't be surprised if the nudity itself was a specific issue that mm-hmm. to that point, I mean, she had if, you, you know, in, Bonnie and Clyde, I mean, she's never actually naked, but there are scenes where it's sort of, you know, it, it's, it's, it, the nudity is hinted at. She's, like, just just barely covered up by, like, a windowsill or sure. something. And then she had done a topless scene in Chinatown. So I think the expectation coming into this is, well, you know, here's an actress who, you know, will get naked for us or will, will do what's required of the scene. And, and, by the way, nobody saw this as... Uh, a salacious scene or a titillating scene. Oh, was, not at all. It was all about language and it was all about, you know, the, the joke of it. But also, you know, at this point, by the time she's making Network, you know, Dunaway has just gotten married to the rock musician P- uh, Peter Wolf. I think she was probably a little bit more, you know, protective of her body and just didn't want to be the actress who, you know, just gets unclothed in every film role. And, and this was where, you know, she at least attempted to draw a line. One interesting piece of context, even before they were making the film, before they started shooting, if you go all the way back to, like, Chayefsky's early drafts of the screenplay, like, when he first is describing the Diana character, he refers to her as tall and willowy with the best ass ever seen on a vice president of programming. Right. And even by the time they draft the press release saying that Faye Dunaway has accepted the role, that line reappears in the press release. So here you have the screenwriter of the film and the studios putting it out, basically repeating this language as if this is like the highest compliment they could pay (laughs) the character. And just the, the chauvinism of that is just completely eludes them. And so this is this is the environment that she is operating in, and this is what she's up against. And it's very complicated. I think that <laughs> the filmmakers had, you know, their very strong reasons for why the scene had to play the way that they wrote it and the way that it was intended, and she had equally strong reasons for not wanting to do it. And, you know, there was this kind of showdown between her and the producer, Howard Gottfried, and her lawyer had to get involved, and her agent, who was... Sue Mengers, who was, you know, again, another rare, strong, powerful woman in an all-male field who represented Dunaway, who had to kind of, you know, run interference for her and work out this arrangement with Howard Gottfried. And it basically gets codified in this very uh, (laughs) sort of coldly clinical contract that is signed between Gottfried and Dunaway, spelling out exactly, you know, what she is or is not going to do in the love scene that, you know— So they do shoot the scene, and then she's allowed to see it in editing. And this also creates a problem because she's very certain that, you know, at least at one point in the scene you can see her nipples, which is a violation of the contract that she signed. And, you know, she kind of flips out. And all the other people in the room with her are men. It's a male editor, Chayefsky, and Howard Gottfried and Sidney Lumet, and they're all like, "Hey, what's you know, what's the big deal?" And the she ed- didn't
1: have any allies. Yes,
0: exactly. And the editor has to explain to her, "Well, you know, it's just a quirk of how you know you're seeing this footage in the editing suite. It's not going to show up like that in the theatrical release of the film." But you know, again, as you're saying, there's no there's nobody else advocating for her in that room, and that's got to be a tough situation.
1: I mean you really have to respect Faye for standing up for herself.
0: This is the line that I think Dunaway is walking, you know, her whole career certainly in this phase of it is, you know, how much can she assert herself? How much is is too much? And mm-hmm. you know when, when should she consider other people's viewpoints and when might it be worth you know, trusting others that you know, maybe they have ideas that are also worth considering and then when should she be allowed to make decisions for herself and be trusted that maybe she knows what's best for her character?
1: Sure. I mean, and she took, uh, it seems like she took Sidney Lumet's note, which I love, which he tells her after she's been cast or maybe in the process of casting Yeah, her. this is
0: at their first meeting when he goes to her apartment. Yeah. To basically, you know, to offer her the role that he says, you know, this character has no vulnerability. Yep. And if you try to add any vulnerability, I'm going to edit it out.
1: Yes, which is so fascinating. And that she also kind of takes that advice to heart and uses that as how she is on set and how she approaches playing Diana as well. I will
0: say, though, I, th- I think there is one moment in the movie when she is very vulnerable. I don't know that Sidney Lumet totally followed through <laughs> on this vow. And it was, you know, the scene that we were talking about earlier, you know, basically as, as, you know, the relationship between Max and Diana is falling apart and there's a scene where he kind of confronts her in the kitchen of her apartment And, you know, there's this really tight close-up on her face, and you can see that emotionally she is just breaking apart. She's just... You wonder if the Diana character, she's maybe never – she's never been the one who gets dumped. She's probably always the one who breaks off these relationships and she just – there's like a real softness in her face and a real kind of innocence in her eyes that she just doesn't know how to process this. And I think, I think a lot of that is deliberate. I don't think that that just kind of slipped by anyone. I think, I think for all of the talk about no vulnerability, I think there's that one moment there.
1: Yeah. Um, Was it your line or were you quoting someone uh, when you write of that, her as having a doe-eyed blankness in that scene?
0: (laughs) I have to look back. I can't. (laughs) I'm going to plead the fifth for now. (laughs) I can't remember if that was a quote or not.
1: Um, But I thought that was such an interesting point that she has this vulnerability in her eyes, but you can't really tell if that is Diana putting on that vulnerability and maybe she is still unfeeling or if she really is kind of so hurt that Max is leaving her and going back to his wife.
0: Yeah. I, I'm gonna you know, I don't since since nobody can prove me right or wrong, <laughs> I'm gonna say that it's, you know, that it's sincere to the character because I mean we're meant to see how, you know, how capable she is in all other, you know, situations of life, certainly in her professional life. And this is this is the only moment we've really ever seen her where she can't handle herself or where she's not totally in control. And it's a really, you know, it's a really interesting moment. It's like that's that's the part of the film where everything is going wrong for everyone. Everybody's got their sort of, their best laid plans and they're all going aglay.
1: Diana, as a very vulgar character,
0: <laughs>
1: is she somebody who men are supposed to be attracted to or, you know, women are supposed to want to be? Or is she someone who serves as kind of a warning as you know what could befall the ambitious
0: that's an interesting question i mean she's certainly shown as somebody who gets what she wants But then, you know, I mean, all of the like all the sexual relationships that she has in the movie, they're always like passing. They're always very brief. There was even a scene that uh, Chayefsky wrote for her that got cut out. Uh, This is actually one of the few studio notes that he does take Hmm. where there was supposed to be a scene when when she goes to Los Angeles to meet with the uh, the executives and the radicals out there where she was going to basically go into like a gay bar and hire a male prostitute to. To come home with yeah her. this like she's basically portrayed as having this kind of like insatiable like sexual appetite but then also not not wanting like a kind of long-term male partnership and yet the Max Schumacher character is the one person who kind of throws her off all of that that maybe he's the first man she meets that she really could have a genuine romantic relationship with mm-hmm. um, But, you know, as I was saying earlier, she is also supposed to represent the kind of corrupting influence of television. Like she's she's not necessarily allowed a redemptive arc in this story because she's supposed to illustrate how Schumacher is a man of principle up until, you know, he kind of gets involved with Diana. And then as as Diana is taking over his show and kind of allowing Howard Beale to continue going on the air, he's not blind to this, but he's sort of allowing it to happen because he wants the the romantic relationship to continue.
1: Do you think Shooting Network was a positive experience for Faye Dunaway?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, it was certainly... It's a career-high moment for her. It's easily one of the best performances she's ever given. But it's not clear to me that she particularly enjoyed the film and, mm-hmm. and that goes to little details like you know when they have the rap party for the movie when they finish shooting it in march of 76 like she doesn't go to the to the rap party uh you know which might be a way of kind of a sort of kiss off to everybody else and then when when the film was first released in november of that year she didn't really participate in a lot of the publicity for it that she did. There's like one press conference that they did at the beginning that everyone attends Mm -hmm. and, and she was there. And then there was like one profile story that she did with uh, William Holden for W Magazine. But no like standalone profiles, not the kind of thing that you would see now. Like if somebody were mounting an Oscar campaign for Anne Hathaway where you'd be on five different magazine covers and you would do two different TV interviews and the talk shows and whatnot. You know, she just didn't really do any of that. There's a People Magazine cover story that she does Right before the Oscars, at a point when everyone is certain, like she's got a lock on winning it. And that's the only point at which she'll kind of deign to do a, a publicity for the film. But otherwise, she's not really present. And, you know, I have to wonder if that was, in some way, you know, a reflection of just not feeling like she had a positive experience
1: or maybe it just adds more to her mystique.
0: Exactly. Well, you know, right, she's I'm saying all these things sort of on her behalf. But I don't know exactly what what she might say. And she this this is kind of true. I think of a lot of other movies that that she did that she didn't. She just we're used to an era of just like total accessibility of totally. our film stars and celebrities in general and that's just not the way she ever operated. I mean, she was she always had a kind of divide between you know a public and private life, and she just did not give herself over in that way. And I think some people just construed that as coldness when it's a perfectly reasonable gesture to just want to keep a part of your life, you know, separate.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, it makes total sense to say, hey, I put in eight months of my life working my butt off making this movie. Now leave me alone and enjoy the
0: movie. (laughs) I mean, the press also loves to use her as a punching bag and, you know, all these gossip items that are written about her during the release of Network and after. And I mean, sadly, you know, her marriage to Peter Wolf, uh, you know, falls apart uh, pretty quickly. And she winds up having an affair with Terry O'Neill, who's the photographer who shoots her for that People magazine article that I was talking about. And O'Neill actually produced this very famous uh, photograph of her. It's so good. This is, you know, the morning after the Academy Awards and she's won her Oscar. And Usually the kinds of portraits that people are used to seeing of, you know, stars and their newly won Oscars, they're always, you know, they're holding it in, you know, in triumph and they have these expressions of disbelief on their face. Think about Anne Hathaway. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So in contrast to that, you know, her portrait, this is like early morning at the pool of the Beverly Hilton Hotel and she's sitting at this table with all these newspapers and magazines, you know, strewn at her feet. And her Oscar's on the table, like, sort of at the far end of it. But she's not really looking at it. She's kind of looking off into the distance with this kind of blank expression on her face. And she sort of compares it to the song, Is That All There Is? <laughs> like she She's at this moment that is supposed to be the sort of pinnacle of her career. And she's not feeling it. And, like... That could be a totally authentic feeling for her. And yet a lot of people see this photo and it's also, you know, it's a strike against her. It's like, why aren't you grateful for everything that you've been given?
1: Yeah. I mean, as the public, we want, like you said, so much access to the inner lives of these people. We want to see we want to see Faye Dunaway taking out her garbage and walking her dog. <laughs> and, you know, when we don't get that, there is the tendency to lash out and say, well... Maybe they're hiding something or she is aloof and uh, cold. Right. So uh, it's kind of a lose-lose situation, I guess. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Certainly a lot of the career choices that she makes in the immediate aftermath of Network when, you know, she's sort of at her apex you know she has like the most power she can ever wield to get paid a lot for her roles and choose the kinds of roles that she wants it all you know kind of gets uh squandered the kinds of films that she makes none of them succeed on this level several of them are bombs and you know she's really kind of on this direct trajectory towards mommy dearest and we kind of know you know what that all leads to
1: sure sure i wanted to talk a little bit about the legacy of um her role in particular. And you spoke with Barbara Walters about how she felt about uh, Diana Christensen existing at the same time that she had just been given the anchor position at ABC.
0: Yeah. So think about this kind of amazing, you know, coincidence or correspondence that at the time you have this movie coming out about the news industry and a very high ranking woman in an all-male environment. Barbara Walters in some ways kind of living that experience Mm -hmm. that she's been, you know, this longtime co-host on the Today Show. And then she gets an offer from a rival network from ABC to be their co-anchor of their evening news with Harry Reasoner. On paper, it's like, you know, great idea and finally the glass ceiling is broken – But, you know, very quickly, it just all goes awry for her that, first of all, you know, it's immediately reported in the papers that she's getting paid a million dollars a year for her job, which is not entirely true because part of that money is going to like other entertainment specials that she's going to host for ABC, the Barbara Walters specials that we became accustomed to. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a strike against her that people think that she's getting overpaid for her work and no other news anchors are getting that kind of money. And uh, how many
1: other news anchors' salaries are being reported on.
0: Exactly. And they – exactly. They were not sort of open books in, in the same way. And then, you know, she's basically frozen out by Harry Reasoner who just never would have accepted I think anybody as a co-anchor but certainly certainly not a woman and certainly not a woman who didn't really come from a kind of hard news background what he – believed was hard news. So, you know, that's also a strike against her, and by the time she does get to go on the air, all the reports are about, you know, there's no chemistry between them and how sort of awkward the arrangement seems to be. And so it's this very uh, kind of short-lived experiment of trying to have at least a female co-anchor. And it'll, it'll be years and years before another woman is ever allowed to hold that position. So, you know, for Walters, it was just, you know, and and she explains this in the book that it was just a very fraught time for her. And that in contrast to, you know, she's watching Network and seeing, you know, Diana basically going out and being kind of a, you know, a stone cold bitch. And for Walters, it's like she knows that's not an approach that would have worked, that there was essentially no approach. There was no right way for a woman to carry herself in that world at that time, that that the the chips were just totally stacked against her and nothing would have worked.
1: She says that she felt like she had to be tough as nails and be one of the guys, but also be better than the men. And it was kind of a, a, a again, a lose-lose situation for her. Um, yeah. And that network was typecasting women. And later, Chayefsky said that he wasn't trying to portray the life of a woman working in news. But of course, it's there and it's popular. So of course, people are going to imagine that it has some truth in in it.
0: Well, of, of course. In fact, the word on the street when network gets released is that Chayefsky supposedly has based all of the characters in network on real people in the TV industry at the time. And people are all sort of pointing fingers at this one uh, female executive at NBC, you know, an entertainment programming executive who is supposedly, you know, the archetype for Diana and somebody there who, you know, rejected Chayefsky's ideas. And so then he got revenge on her by – caricaturing her in this way. Now, I mean, of course, the evolution of the script tells us that that's not at all what happened. But this again, this becomes sort of, you know, everybody just jumps to this conclusion. And and then that's that's sort of the reputation that network gets saddled with for decades is that it was this kind of revenge movie.
1: Hmm. You know, a lot of in the same way that people imagined that Barbara Walter's life in news was a lot like Diana Christensen's, Mm -hmm. I just now realized it's kind of in the way, you know, girls has come out and everybody assumes that anyone in their mid to late 20s lives exactly that life or has exactly that lack of ambition which is something that I feel like people of my generation are constantly saddled with um, is that comparison so yeah. I see where Barbara's coming from <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that and that's and you know and sort of one of the lessons of a movie like Network is like that's you know that's the power of media and the, the way that it can kind of introduce us to these worlds and even something that's as like deeply satirical as either of those works I mean girls I, obviously has a very strong satirical component also and it's not it's not necessarily trying trying to sort of hold up, OK, this is what life is like for every young woman or even for any particular young woman. But then these things become sort of inadvertent archetypes that this is, you know, they're introducing, you know, millions of viewers to these worlds without the authors even kind of realizing it.
1: Yeah. Um, I always read the acknowledgments of a book. I actually find them very interesting, oh, and cool. um, I don't know. Maybe you're the only person I've uh, noticed a- drop an f bomb in their acknowledgment section.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, that, but that was that was in reference to language from the movie. Yes, that, of that course. Was, that <laughs> I was sort of acknowledging language that the you know when the Ecumenical Liberation Army <laughs> is uh, negotiating their TV contract the debate is all about the uh the fucking overhead yep Clause and so you know i thought if i'm talking about my own literary <laughs> agent i got to make acknowledgement or reference to that scene
1: well i appreciated it <laughs>
0: great <laughs> our
1: guest on bonnie and Maud has been dave itzkoff uh whose book the making of network and the fateful vision of the angriest man in the movies you definitely need to read if you have not already dave thank you so much for coming on the show it
0: was my pleasure thank you for having me on
1: and people can follow you on twitter at
0: d itzkoff
1: and you can follow us on twitter at bonnie and Maud.
0: 'Cause I was
1: born naturally born, born bad, born bad, born bad, born.